And if you do look at it for a second, it'll catch you a little bit, maybe, that we're dropping right into the middle of something. Well, we are. But this is the start of an entirely new segment. And Jesus opens with some amazing words. And I'm not sure how to read them. Because reading them right or differently will change the way the rest of the text goes. But here Jesus is speaking there's a, quite a group of people with him, including Pharisees and teachers of the law. What do you think? Now, I don't know. If you say that to your kids, it's usually after they've done something less than stellar. What do you think? But it also could be read, what do you think? Or what do you think? And they all change a little bit what's coming, and Jesus immediately launches into a parable that, as Zach said this morning, I'm with him on that one. I just have no recollection of this parable. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not he answered, but later changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Some of the reading I did by other people who know what they're talking about said that phrase could also be read instead of you. So let's go back and read that again. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God instead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, I'd like to first of all thank Drew for giving me the opportunity to lead you in the study of a parable he skipped. And quite frankly, I really do think I skipped this parable my whole life. I Zach noted this morning the parable was new to him. I've certainly read Matthew 21, but I just can't remember this one parable. Maybe some of the others of you are in the same boat. I guess there's no better reason than that to study it. So let's dig in. Beginning as... I do with my Old Testament class at school, or if you're in this section this semester, we will soon. First, we start by getting the lay of the land and just observing what we read. Look quickly, not deeply, but just what's there. Observations. So I begin this way. First, in strangeness and sequence, Jesus fires off an odd question. What do you think? That caught me right away. 
He is talking, of course, to the Pharisees. Second, I noticed that the first son answers with a tone that would get my attention as a parent, teacher, or adult in general. I will not. Would that get your attention? Hmm. Third, I noticed the second son answers appropriately and respectfully, sir, I will not. And that warms the cockles of my heart to be called sir. Sir, I will. Fourth, I noticed Jesus dragging the Pharisees into self-incrimination again. They didn't seem to get the parallel between the supposedly obedient but ultimately unrepentant sinning son and themselves. Fifth, he brings up the Jewish leader's rejection of John the Baptist. Sixth, he brings up two of the worst people of their day, tax collectors, who more often than not in that area, of course, would have been Jewish, in the employ of the hated Roman government. And we've all heard the stories before how it was, it's more like a toll person, if you had a toll, the old days of toll booths. Um, more uh, Closer to that, except they would add whatever they wanted onto it to get the toll amount. So they were crooked, they were wealthy, and they worked for the Romans. And prostitutes, as points of comparison, I'll leave that to you. So that, those are just some initial things that grabbed me at the beginning. Then what is the context? Like, Where are we in the storyline, maybe, of Jesus? So after initial observation, we look at the broader context of a text, especially one so short. This is where things, to me, get interesting. I have a poor grasp of the actual historical timeline of Jesus' life. I know the basics. But usually for me, they seem like a bunch of events, conversations, all rather random, all rather separated, but all of great importance. I did finally clue in that the parable for tonight is part of the great and unfolding drama of events leading up to what is often called Holy Week. See how many of these you may remember. And I've listed events, more or less, the two chapters leading into our text. Jesus had been toward the north in Galilee. He left to go south to Jerusalem. Depending on the starting point and the goal, Walking, this is a two to two and a half day trip. If you're going from way north Galilee to way south Judea, longer than that, but probably two and a half days maybe. And Jesus, as he knew, it was toward his death by crucifixion. He crossed the Jordan with large crowds following. The Pharisees tried to trick him with questions about divorce which Jesus turns back on them, adding fuel to the fire of their hatred. Jesus pronounced the famous, let the little children come to me, lines. Jesus spoke with the rich young ruler who thought he had done it all and went away sad. 
Jesus spoke in some caustic parallels, parables to certain people, especially Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus gave his disciples the details of his upcoming death and resurrection, which they somehow did not file away for a week. Immediately following those striking words that I would die, be crucified, and then three days later rise, the mother of, Mary, the mother of James and John pushed for answers on who will be the greatest in the new kingdom. Jesus must at some point there have recrossed the Jordan, gone to Jericho, he, uh, shortly after this, he commissioned his disciples to get him the foal of a donkey. Immediately before that, sorry, he gave sight to two blind men. One, they may be separate incidents. Then comes the triumphal entry with the palm branches and all that. And all of this is just a couple of days. Jesus, Jesus immediately heads up to the temple area, of course. Um, I was wondering before the service was sacked, was Jesus singing psalms of ascents on his way up, knowing it's his crucifixion? Could he do that? But there would be streams of people heading toward that temple area, apparently singing and cheering and welcoming him, and, and I just picture that scene, and I wonder. He gets to the temple area and throws the money changers out of the temple courts, that event yet. He curses a fig tree. And the Pharisees question Jesus' authority again. And by the way, he trips them up again. Then our little text for tonight, and one final thing after their humiliation and another beautifully targeted parable, the Pharisees begin to look for ways to arrest him and much more. All of that happening within the span of a very few days. I, I did not have that till I sat down and listed them according to the day of the month in the Jewish calendar. This is the month of Nisan, first month of their year. All of this rising action, obviously heading toward a climax, which we know, but at that point, those in our story, other than Jesus and maybe a few attentive people, did not know. That's the setting for this encounter. So now let's look at the scripture itself. And there again, the rule is let scripture interpret scripture. So I tried to look for other themes or topics like this. Do the basic message and details of this parable seem familiar at all? The bad person ends up getting God's message while the supposedly good person stews angrily in a corner? Much of the book of Matthew is occupied with Jesus issuing warnings and accusations aimed at the brood of vipers 
or whitewashed tombs, or as the King James Version says, whited sepulchers, to go way back. Again, that's obviously the Pharisees, looking good on the outside but full of death on the inside. The devastating woes pronounced by Jesus target the same group. Again, in Matthew 23, he pronounces woes to them by saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he does that six times. And the other woe, he refers to them as blind guides. Hardly more cheerful. Now back to Matthew 21, the Pharisees, having questioned Jesus' authority at this point, Jesus fires off his big guns again. He loads up some parables and delivers them with devastating effect. A pastor I had in Michigan, in Grand Rapids, John Timmer, Dr. Timmer, wrote a book called The Kingdom Equation on parables. And he always said when Jesus really needed to make an impact, he would crank in a, a, a parable. And it seems over and over, the more you read, that that would have something to it. Our little parable is so short, I hardly need to repeat the storyline. In fact, it hardly has one. The father asks one son to work. He refuses, does it anyway. Very common thing we may have had in our very own homes. He then asks the apparently dependable son to work, and he willingly and respectfully assents, but then doesn't do the work. Also something we're probably moderately familiar with. As per usual, Jesus asks the Pharisees a loaded question, and they answer entirely as expected. Then Jesus moves on to another parable, which I think Drew addressed weeks ago, either that or I've read it so often it seems familiar. The owner of a vineyard sends employees to check on tenant farmers. They keep beating up and they even kill the owner's servants. He sends to check on them and collect the portion of the crop. Finally, the owner sends his son. Surely he thought they wouldn't harm him. Indeed, they abuse and finally kill him. Again, Jesus asks a question with the Pharisees trip over themselves trying to answer, ushering in their own condemnation. So listen to verses 42 and following. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Verse 41, oh, he will bring those wretches to, the, to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyards to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Jesus says to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus here moves from a very abstract parable point of view, that is, third person, very abstract, saying they, them, they did this, this happened to them. And then he says, in a very personal way, you, in the application and the explanation. Over and over during his life, Jesus targets those who have all the knowledge, who have all the experience, all of the religious exposure, all of the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the history, all of the opportunities, all of the reasons to get these faith things right, and yet are blindly smug in their own ignorance and self-righteousness. Think, if you will, of one of the parables of the wedding feast. While familiar to many, I'll read a section from Matthew 22, 2 through 10. The kingdom of God is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. There's a lot there to start with. But Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite the bank to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets, gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The application of this text, I suppose, may seem basic and a bit obvious. Our, our little parable tonight of two sons don't lie, do what you're told. After all, this was the owner's vineyard or this was the owner's place where he was allowed to tell his sons to go work. Do what you're told, respect authority. I think there's a whole lot more than those things. The Pharisees and teachers of the law of the Jewish people had it all wrong. They had it all wrong for centuries. They assumed as the chosen people that they were also by definition righteous. They also assumed that the Gentiles, with notable exceptions, were maybe the invited folk who rejected the invite, who knows, or not even invited at all. Gentiles were somehow the bad son in the parable. It starts to fall apart. We today, on the other hand, may simply assume that the parable's a bit dated and doesn't have a whole lot of obvious application. Maybe that's how I read it before and just slid right on by. We know that not all of God's chosen people, not all the Jews followed his commands, nor did every Gentile run off into hellish perdition. 
We know the vision Peter received about the clean and unclean animals. We know about the Jerusalem Council in which it was made clear that the gospel was for all people, not just Jews. We know Galatians 3, 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. I fear our danger is to consider ourselves on the good side of the parable, if there are sides. The problem is, which side are we on? Well, certainly most of us here, I assume, are Gentiles. Gwen's great-great-grandfather was Jewish, but that's maybe as close as we get. We are the scruffy invitees gathered from the streets and alleys because we certainly aren't the Pharisees. Or is that so? To me, the application is tied up in the challenge to not be the Pharisees. This is where it gets really ugly. If this parable has anything to involve us, the problem is that if we're not the Pharisees bathing in our own supposed righteousness, what does that make us? Tax collectors and prostitutes? Before the saving work of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we are. You see, the problem, if I apply this to my life, I have to figure out who I am in the story, and the truth is it could be either. Jesus clearly targeted the Pharisees in our short parable. That's absolutely certain. He highlighted their hypocritical assurance in their own heritage and rule-following as the source of their pride and salvation. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity discusses morality and Christian behavior. And talking about the nature of rules and laws, he writes in book three, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. Over and over, Jesus powered through pharisaical defenses and often used parables and direct commentary from the parables. Quoting verse 32 again, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and parables and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, or instead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. It adds great bite to the statement. So the parable drives us into the corner, which I think Jesus intended. First, if I'm like the Pharisee who does everything right, who tithes, who attends Sunday church twice on Sunday, kills the weeds in my lawn, edges my sidewalk, shovels my sidewalk as the snow descends from frozen skies, I'm pretty sure I'm on track for heaven. If this is our tendency, then this parable should drive us to our knees in repentance. Romans 3.19, referencing both Psalms 14 and 53, clearly asserts, as it is written, there is no one righteous, 
not even one. This should discourage any of our best attempts at saving ourselves, self-righteousness, pride in self. Spurgeon writes, the second son said, I go, sir, but he went not. And these people, referencing those who rely on their own works, do not go. They talk of repenting, but they do not repent. They speak of believing, but they never believe. They think of submitting to God, but they have not submitted themselves to him yet. They say it is time they broke up the fallow ground and sought the Lord, but they do not seek him. It all ends in a mere promise. So second, if we are the metaphorical tax collectors and prostitutes, often called sinners, the message is the same. Live the life I, God would say, called you to live. Realize you cannot save yourself. Rely on Jesus as our only sacrifice. Give up a life of self-worship or self-gratification. If we live in unrepentant sin, the message is the same. Turn from wicked ways, confess sin, and receive the salvation paid for by Christ. Some people have such a sense of guilt that they believe they can't possibly crawl out of the hole into which they have dug for themselves. And of course, you and I are too wicked and evil to save ourselves. But that's the point. That's the beauty of Christ's work, the good news. That's the gospel. Christ paid the price of our sin once and for all. The work is done. I suspect I've messed up some biblical scholars' work on this parable, but the text convicted me of the truth that it doesn't matter which side of the parable I'm on. Whether I'm the tax collector or prostitute or drunk or fraud or you fill in the blank, I'm in need of the free gift of salvation or I'll remain in a world and eternity of hurt. If I'm the Pharisee, comfortable in my generally moralish and inoffensive lifestyle, I better get it right. But we stand against the scripture as taught in, for example, Isaiah 64. You come to, help, to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and the winds, our sins, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. One commentator concluded his study of Matthew 21 this way. I would like to close by posing a few questions that we can ask ourselves. For example, you might want to ask yourself, do I profess to believe in Jesus, although I have not really repented of my sin? 
Or perhaps you could ask yourself, do I claim to have repented of my sin, yet do not follow the Lord in obedience? If you have genuinely not repented and obeyed the gospel, then he writes, I pray by God's grace that you too may regret this and trust in him today. The beauty of the message that Jesus delivered shortly before his own death is that we can experience the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. We can glory today in the results of his death and resurrection. No matter who we are, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Love covers our sin. Let's pray.